Guardian Unlimited. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Islamophonic, the Muslim podcast from your caring, sharing guardian. Very busy show this week because we're looking at two new reports. One claiming that young Muslims are increasingly in favour of Sharia law and the other accusing us, Her Majesty's Press, of Islamophobia. How dare they! Accused fled London wearing burqa. Muslim majority schools pose security threat and should be closed. Muslim only kitchen kit for jail. Can you spot the villain in the veil? Muslims refuse anti MRSA gel. Secrets of Sharia courts. Muslim only pool outrage. Off with the veil at UK airports. Sharia law is spreading. So those are real headlines, but are we the press really that bad? I went to the University of East London to find out how Muslims there thought they were being portrayed by the press. Now, some of you griped about the Bangra from Whitechapel in our first podcast. We didn't do it on purpose, honestly. It was just there playing in the background. This time there was a salsa stall in the corridor where I was doing my interviews. They aren't portrayed very well at all. At the moment I find the portrayal is pretty negative. I'd like to give you an example. Whenever a terrorist attack happens or talk of extremism, who are the first people that I interview? If you notice how many times they've gone to al-Mahajiruni representatives, people who obviously have a very extreme point of view of Islam, how they're given so much time on the, on the screens. Just the hijab and the veil thing at the moment. The patrol is, the woman is oppressed and it's shown as if, you know, every single Muslim woman is vowed and it's done because she doesn't want it, it's because a guy is doing it. What do we need to do? Make people more aware of our religion and show that they, it's a good thing and there are good sides to being a Muslim. I think that's probably going to be the only way, but how we're going to do it is another story. For me, as a Muslim, I believe that first and foremost it is the duty of Muslims themselves. If Muslims portray themselves in a better manner, we wouldn't have to worry about anything. I want to see women reading the news who are wearing a scarf. Why, why isn't that so, even on the Muslim channels? Why aren't there women wearing a scarf reading the news? Students and staff from the University of East London. Here with me in the studio is Arzu Murali from the Islamic Human Rights Commission, a co-author of a report on Islamophobia in the media. So, Arzu, do those opinions tally with your research? They are actually pretty much almost, uh, you know, you could say word for word for things that we found. I mean, we took a long time over this particular piece of research and sadly that kind of negativity is what comes across. You know, we ask them, why don't you complain? You know, you ask people, what should we do? People, you know, why don't you pick up the phone and just try and, you know, sort things out? And people are getting to the point of saying, well, you know, nobody listens. Why bother anymore? Also, here is Matt Wells, media editor of The Guardian. He also is the editor of Media Guardian. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, you've it's read the report and you know the industry inside out, warts and all. Pretty much the same thing. Um, uh, How Islamophobic is the media? Well, I think that uh, the media tends to play on people's fears. It's done this like, you know, down the ages, you know, in the whole history of the press. That's what the, the media, that's how you sell papers, basically. It's to a greater or lesser extent, so the popular press tends to play on people's fears more, mm. uh, and people, you know, the more serious press, you like might the say, Guardian. like The Guardian, tends to play on people's fears a little bit, you know, not quite so much as maybe the Daily Mail. But, uh, and I think it's undoubtedly true that the whole kind of 
the, the story of the moment is terrorism and difference and integration or non-integration and how the majority of people in Britain are going to get on with new emerging minorities. And that is a kind of narrative of the moment. So the, the question is, are, they, are we getting the narrative right? And I think undoubtedly we're not, obviously, because of the, the way that your correspondence and this report have, have come out. But I'm not defending that. But to understand it, that's what you have to see. It's to do with... Um, uh, you, you know, kind of quite deep-seated and and also commercial concerns, I think. And is it right? No, it's not. But does it sell papers? Yes, yes it, it does. does. Yeah, That's pretty depressing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but also, Arzu, it's not just the newspapers who are at mm. fault here. You also cited examples of film and television programmes that had negative portrayals of Muslims. I mean, really, you've encompassed everyone from Aladdin to Indiana Jones. I mean, aren't you worried about trivialising Islamophobia? Uh, no, on the contrary. I think what we were looking at and <clears throat> sort of setting in the context of people's responses was actually looking at, you know, the prevailing culture. There is a sort of a problem with representation. I think Matt's right. You know, it's not like it's something new just for Muslims, but the problem is this is where it's being highlighted at the moment. Something that this report actually picks up on is the fact that off of the back of this type of Islamophobia, you will get actually other prejudices creeping back in. And I think we've seen that in recent weeks, particularly in certain discourses. But... Uh, going back to the meat of the reports, you know, unfortunately, these are things that have been running for sort of decades, and that was something else that's been lost. We, we're talking about the here and there, and the issue is terrorism. You know, what was it when Aladdin was out? What was going on when Raiders of the Lost Ark was about? You know, we looked at literature that's going back even longer back than that, and the whole idea of the Oriental. So, you know, we have to really start tackling these things at a structural level. Matt? I wondered whether uh, it was whether you, you and your report, whether you mm. found that that things before the kind of 9-11 and the mm. whole terrorism thing became an issue, whether things had shown signs of actually getting better and then had been suddenly made set back again. Mm-hmm. Did you find that at all? Um, it's very difficult to kind of do that kind of comprehensive yeah. overview. What we saw in film was actually the idea of the kind of crazy terrorist actually picking up in the mid-90s. And, I mean, we highlighted a few, like, executive decisions. So before and, even yeah, the, Exactly, and yeah. uh, even the siege, which sort of tried to set out a broadly liberal store but was actually in some ways more problematic. So, you know, it was actually there 10-plus years ago, and... Uh, it's troubling to say the least. Okay, well, we'll come back to some possible solutions later. Um, But perhaps Muslims don't always help themselves when it comes to representation. Lord Timbell, the advertising and public relations maestro, is an expert at getting your point across to the great and the good. He gave me a few tips on how Muslim organisations can do a better job at lobbying the government. The art of lobbying is to present your case, to present it well, to present it persuasively, but also to point out what it is you want. If you don't tell people what it is you want, how on earth can they deliver it to you? And therefore, if you, if you are lobbying for a special interest group, the ability to get your argument across should be on the merit of your argument. Lobbying is about wanting to achieve something as opposed to whinging. Um, And quite a lot of lobbying is all about whinging. It's all about going to people and saying, it's not fair, it's not fair. Actually, the most sensible way to lobby is say, here is a problem and here is my solution. What do you think about my solution? Debate the solutions. That's that's the constructive way to do it. So basically what you're saying is that the trick to successful lobbying is knowing what you want, Hmm. knowing how to present it, and actually having an idea of how it could be achieved and then going to somebody and saying... That is the most... In real 
professional lobbying yeah. is about showing parliamentarians mm. how they can amend a bill to achieve what it is you want. And it is a technical process as well as being a political process. Uh, you know, very often there are amendments which people want to put forward, but they just can't be phrased properly to, to make them have their true strength in law. But from the lobbying point of view, it's all about presentation, about presenting a coherent argument, a consistent argument, mm -hmm. and an argument rather than a whinge. What you should be doing is showing that there is a benefit in what you're proposing as opposed to a disbenefit. I mean, the greatest skill in the world in negotiation is to go to somebody and say, I want you to agree to this because it's beneficial to you, rather than I want you to agree to this because it's beneficial to me. Because they've got to justify it to other people, they need to show what the advantage is. That was Baron Bell of Belgravia with pointers on successful lobbying. He normally charges a fortune for that sort of advice, so I hope you are taking notes. Um, Arzu, is it that Muslims don't actually know how to interact with journalists? I mean, they don't... From my experience as a reporter on the job, the Muslims I speak to don't either don't read the papers or don't understand mm. the differences between a paper like The Mail and The Guardian. I'm not sure all Muslims are quite in that category, but I think, you know... Obviously, if you like, media skills is part of the issue, but I think... There I have has to, take... to be education on both sides, I think. Definitely, but I mean, at the end of the day, when you're talking about minorities, you're generally talking about muted voices, and it's not just uh, enough to kind of, if you like, add them into the mixture and stir. You know, it is about facilitating, you know, understanding of what it's, it's all about for them, for them to just change the way they talk and then start saying, well, you know, please don't change this because it helps me. It's going to help you. I mean, I'd much rather that the normative point actually stood and it was that, well, please change this because it doesn't just benefit me, it benefits everybody. So let's talk about practical solutions. What can the media do, Matt, and what can Muslims do rather than just picking up a phone and writing a letter? Well, I mean, I think that, that undoubtedly the media has to, to reflect more uh, the the people who they report on because um, that just will make for better reporting and you know I'm, I'm going to have to mention this because if we don't mention it then then we'll get you know uh, uh, letters emails from from people complaining you know we uh, we have at the Guardian made attempts to increase the number of people from ethnic minorities and it ended in a bit of you know disaster and mm. failure when we recruited somebody who turned out to be from Hisbeteria and uh, and that and then we dealt with that really badly and got a lot of criticism for it and so you know <laughs> it's like you know it but I think we have to get over those kinds of uh, of uh, don't let that put us off yeah. and we have to just like go back again and I think you know I'm not talking about positive discrimination that would be ridiculous but actively seek out to say that people that it's a really good career choice it is. it's, it's a, a really fun choice. job I love my job you, yeah we all love our jobs and it's really interesting <laughs> and um, uh, and and try and encourage people you know you know you know go out and find people and uh, and the BBC has managed to do it yeah it and, has lots of schemes you know and uh, and whether it's a scheme or just you know a change in kind of mindset among the people that we recruit from and it's true that the at the Guardian over the past few years we have started you know being much more open about our recruitment processes we, and everyone should be should do that more I, I, you know I don't know what you think uh, yeah I mean I think you see there's a lot of things Muslims can do and yes you know there are a lot of stupid Muslims out there saying bad things and we give a bad image but that's life you know mm. and the thing there's is a lot of stupid uh, white, you know white people and Christians as well you know, <laughs> <laughs> and and so on and so yeah. forth but the thing is we don't kind of just judge the whole world by that and I think it's uh, you know Muslims can apply to these schemes but it is yeah. ultimately about a sea change in media culture mm. and uh, that's not something that Muslims can push that has to be driven internally okay thank you very much for the people who listen to our inaugural podcast, you'll have heard me giving you a fatwa on removing eyebrow hair. You're not supposed to do it. However, I ignored the fatwa and had my eyebrows done anyway. 
but the beautician did a really bad job and now I've got two wonky arches on my face instead of the bushy beasts that were there before. Here's this week's Fact while Focus. Is it permissible to shake hands with a member of the opposite sex? When swimming in a ladies-only environment, is it permissible for a woman to wear a bathing suit if the other women are Muslim? What if the other women are non-Muslim? Is it permissible to listen to music? It is not permissible to shake hands with a member of the opposite sex. When swimming in a ladies-only environment, you can wear a swimming cosy in front of other Muslim women, but not in front of non-Muslim women. So, on those occasions, you could wear a burkini, which is like a wetsuit with a hood, but that might feel like you're swimming in a sleeping bag. So, don't go swimming, or you could build a pool instead of an extension in your back garden. It is haram to listen to music intentionally, but music's a tricky one because certain sorts of music are okay. We're planning a music special, so stay tuned for that. Jazakallah to Abu Sayyid from the Islamic Sharia Council for the answers. It's not just the Islamophobia report that's had people huffering and puffering away into their tea. A think tank called Policy Exchange published a report on Monday about changing attitudes among young Muslims. I spoke to one of the authors, Munira Mirza, and she talked me through the research. We did a, a survey of a 1,000 Muslims and interviews with about 40 Muslims, and we found that amongst younger Muslims there tend to be a stronger identification with their religion and stronger and more conservative, culturally conservative views about things like Sharia law. So, for instance, 37% of 16 to 24-year-olds said that they would prefer to live under Sharia compared to about 17% of over 55-year-olds. The same with the wearing of the, the headscarf or the, the veil. 74% of 16 to 24-year-olds so that it would prefer for women, Muslim women to choose to wear the veil, whereas there was only 28% of 55-plus-year-olds the same. Why do you think Muslims are arriving at these decisions or attitudes? I think that it's an, a number of different factors. You know, One might be the influence of groups from abroad. The other might be that there is a, a kind of general search for meaning in, in, in the contemporary period. Lots of young people generally are looking to, to find their identity and something to belong to. So you've got a rise in Englishness and Scottishness and a rise in other ethnic groups. And I think in one way, Muslims are no different, really, to anyone else. And I think another factor, which we argued in the report, is that the politics of multiculturalism have emphasised differences and um, made some people feel more connected to their particular ethnic or cultural or religious group rather than the wider society. So who's to blame for this particular emphasis on multiculturalism? I don't think anyone's done it consciously. I think it's happened over the past 10 to 15 years, partly as a way of trying to make people feel included. The authorities, in trying to engage with ethnic minorities, have have actually reinforced their sense of difference and their exclusion. Do you also think that younger Muslims are rejecting British society because it doesn't offer them anything? Younger Muslims are like young people, and young people are increasingly feeling detached from Britishness and from British society, and from the West more generally. There is a sense in which British society doesn't seem to stand for much, or at least that's the appearance, that there don't seem to be any strong values that are confidently held and I think the reaction to that is is the expression of this kind of new identity. Um, well that pretty much ties in with what the UEL students were saying to me yesterday. Uh, there was one student in particular called Nasa who said that younger Muslims wanted Sharia law as a guide. Most of the Muslims that I've come across the younger generation are more practicing than their parents and Islam you know it means humanity it means peace and I believe that that's what the younger Muslims are aiming towards 
being compassionate human beings. And Sharia law is an important part of Islam. Sharia law is a deterrent and it's there to govern your life. So when the younger generation said that we want it in our lives, all they want is the deterrent to be there so they don't do it. So that was NASA from the University of East London. Manira, what are the implications for this trend? I don't think that large numbers of young Muslims are going to become terrorists. I don't think they're going to be a security threat in any way. I think that they express a, a more profound cultural malaise and a sense amongst young people generally that, you know, we're looking for something. We want to be inspired by something. We want something to believe in. And that, I think, is potentially a positive thing. Um, I think it raises a question then for us as a society about how we channel that. Uh, hopefully the implications for the report and the findings was to, is to broaden the discussion and, and to really to think about you know Muslims not as an alien race but as human beings and people who are struggling with some of the same problems that everyone else is. So, you know, let's not treat them as different. Let's engage with them as citizens. That was Manira Mirza from the Policy Exchange Think Tank. Still with me in the studio is Arzu Murali from the Islamic Human Rights Commission. She hasn't walked out yet. <laughs> Arzu, what did you think of that? Um, I had a look through the report and uh, two things actually disturbed me about it. One was that it was very polemical and uh, in that polemicism was sort of that took the basis that difference is negative per se. And so, you know, all these things have been highlighted, whether Muslims wanted Sharia law or whatever. It was just universally bad, you know, if it wasn't sort of fitting a kind of what Samuel Huntington says is the right way of living in the West. Right. You know, it was a bit off key. And to support this, certain authors that, you know, people I even know, like Anthony McRoy, who's written a fantastic book, uh, From Rashid to 7-7, Radical Islam in the UK, and so Mm -hmm. on, was sort of quoted in a way that suggested that maybe they agreed with things like this when they didn't. I mean, Olivier Roy, Humayun Ansari, that kind of distressed me a bit. It was a bit uh, off-message, if you like. Um, That was me trying to be polite. um, (laughs) Secondly, there was something buried in there, which for me is kind of concerned me in the last few weeks particularly, and that was that there was a huge criticism of the McPherson definition of... Racism, the perception of racism. Now, you know, it's it's the thing at the moment to have a go at Muslims and what kind of, you know, the Muslim problem. Mm. McPherson was looking at, you know, racism uh, as highlighted by the murder of Stephen Lawrence. Stephen and Lawrence, it's yeah. inquiry. And if, as this report says, you know, OK, it doesn't matter how nice he was and, you know, McPherson was very high-minded, but it's actually contributed to racial tension, I think we're in a scary position. We're basically trying to undo what was a seismic shift in, mm. for the better in this country. Right, OK. Thank you very much, Alzu Murali. Declan Walsh, our correspondent for Pakistan and Afghanistan, has taken time out from chasing Taliban fighters to give us a press digest. Declan, where are you and what's caught your eye? Well, I'm in Islamabad and we're just coming to the end of a very long weekend where the press coverage has been entirely dominated by the issue of Muharram. As you know, we've reached the end of the 10-day period of mourning that most Shias participate in and it's been a particularly fraught time here in Pakistan because there's been an enormous amount of suicide attacks uh, particularly in Frontier Province but also one here in Islamabad in the capital so um, all the coverage really has been focused on the huge security around the country, snipers on roofs intelligence people chasing leads on possible attacks a huge army and police presence on the streets it's already you know, a sign of quite worrying times here in Pakistan So in Pakistan, the stories have been all about the violent suicide attacks that have taken place over the last few days. But of course, over the last few weeks, the whole of the subcontinent has been obsessed almost with the goings-on in the celebrity Big Brother house. There's been intermittent reports about Shilpa Shetty, of course, and there's pictures in all the papers yesterday. I, I don't think it's quite caught fire here the way that it's caught fire in Britain, of course, but people here certainly are, are interested. And, of course, in Pakistan, we've got a huge British-Pakistani population that goes backwards 
backwards and forwards and they'll all have been watching this very closely. But from CBB to BB, Benazir Bhutto, as was, I understand there's um, a bit of a scandal about her marital state of affairs. That's right. There's been um, a couple of reports in the papers, if you like, based on a piece by a very well-known journalist here called Mariana Baber, and she's one of the best reporters in the news newspaper. Mariana is, is a journalist, but also a close friend of Benazir Bhutto, and she's written a story in an Indian magazine of all places, saying that Bhutto's marriage with her husband, Asaf Zardari, is effectively over. She's saying that Benazir, or Bibi as she's known here, is in Dubai with her children, and Zardari is in New York with his dogs. They say that the last time Benazir went to New York, she stayed with a friend instead of staying with her husband, apparently according to her because her friend had a bigger apartment um, within this in, within the story written by Mariana Baber she's saying that the marital going has been stormy the discord most often arising from a husband reluctant to live in the shadow of his wife that has sparked off lots of comment about whether politics and marriage go together, um, you know, drawing on examples of other famous political women whose marriages have failed, like Indira Gandhi and Gloria Arroyo. Um, and then a little bit of serious political analysis as well, because, of course, we're supposed to be heading into an election year, and possibly Benazir Bhutto uh, may come back to Pakistan, even though at the moment she faces corruption charges here, um, and, you know, whether this will benefit her or, or not. Thank you very much, Declan Walsh in Islamabad. Thank you also to our studio guests, Arzu Murali from the Islamic Human Human Rights Commission and to the Media Guardian editor Matt Wells. The show was produced by Francesca Panetta and Tim Maybe and presented by me, Riaz Atbat. The music is by Aki Nawaz. Jazakallah for listening and until next week, wa alaikum assalam. Guardian Unlimited.